you don't mind, uh, open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 2 and hold your spot there when you find it. So hold Acts chapter 2 and then turn a couple books to the left to Luke chapter 3. So hold Acts chapter 2 and look at Luke chapter 3. As you are getting there, again, Acts chapter 2 and Luke chapter 3, I'm just going to sort of jump in here. So we have started the book of Acts, and now we get to this very famous Pentecost um, event, and I want to give some background information to sort of maybe shed a little bit of light as we move into this topic. So before I get to Luke 3, the last book in our Old Testament, the book of Malachi, uh, has the last two chapters, Malachi 3 and 4, it predicts the coming of an Elijah-like figure. This person will come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and we come to find out that this Elijah-like figure in the New Testament is John the Baptist, okay? So John the Baptist is the Elijah-like figure being spoken of here, and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Remember Isaiah 40? One prepares the way of the Lord, and now Malachi picks up on this and and says the same thing. I know you're not in Malachi, but just listen to these words from Malachi 3. The Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger, this is John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand for when he appears, For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So just follow this here. John the Baptist is going to prepare the way, the Elijah-like figure. Then the Lord is going to come. And everybody thinks they want the Lord to come until he actually shows up, and some people are not ready for the Lord to come. So he's giving a warning ahead of time. I know you want the Lord to come, but if he comes when you are not spiritually prepared, it will not be a day of good news. It will be a day of bad news for that individual. And so the Lord's coming is compared to a fire, and it says a refiner's fire. And like soap, he is going to come with a refiner's fire and purify the gold of his people. Remember 1 Peter? Your faith, which is like gold, is purified in the fire, and it comes out more pure. So, This fire that comes with the Lord, this fire for a genuine believer, is not going to destroy us. It's going to destroy what is impure in us. This is good news. This fire purges us of what is wrong with us and leaves the gold of our faith intact and purified. Do you follow that there? Now, this same fire also also has an opposite effect on those who reject the Lord. Uh, Malachi 4, next chapter. For behold, the day is coming, the same day when the Lord comes, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. From the stall. Okay. Now turn to Luke chapter 3. Do you see the negative side? So the negative side of this fire for the unrepentant, the arrogant on the day of the Lord's coming, the fire will not purify them, it will consume them. Do you see the two sides to this fire? It purifies the believer and it brings judgment on the unbeliever. And I think this is in John's mind because he knew Malachi, because he was kind of the, one of the main characters in that book, so I'm, I'm sure he was pretty familiar with it. It's four chapters, and he's sort of in it. If you were in a book of the Bible, it was four chapters long, you would probably know it pretty well. So John, no doubt, knows this passage incredibly well, and I think he's referring to it here. So look with me in Luke 3. Here's the negative side, verse 9. Let me start in verse 8, excuse me. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Does that sound like the Malachi fire? Now look at verse 15. 
As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, I know Christians debate this point, as many points are debated, but I, I will just say I think that this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, you know, are both of those positive or negative? I've always wondered that. You know, I, baptism of the Spirit is great. Baptism of fire, is that a good or a bad thing? And my, my best take on this is that he's referring to the two aspects of the fire of judgment. For the believer, baptism of fire is the Holy Spirit coming to purify what is imperfect within us, the refiner's fire of Malachi 3. And for those who do not know the Lord, those who do not have repentance, it says here that the fire will come upon them as judgment, and they will, they will burn with unquenchable fire, a fire of judgment. So you see, I think that this baptism of fire can be taken both positively and negatively depending on how one responds to the gospel, and that goes with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now turn with me to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. We are going to see here the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place in Acts chapter 2. And there are lots of questions about this. I'll just say a couple things, and I I hope to address this in a future sermon in, in more detail. But Today, when someone becomes a Christian, at that moment, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we have all been baptized in one spirit, and we have drunk of one spirit in Christ into one body. We are baptized. There there is one baptism of of the Spirit that we obtain at the moment of our conversion. There is a teaching amongst, I would say, some charismatic churches, not all, but some charismatic churches would teach that there is a second blessing or a future baptism of the Spirit that comes, could come many years after your conversion or never at all, and that if you haven't had that baptism of the Spirit evidenced in speaking in tongues, then you have not yet gotten all that the Lord has for you. And I do not believe that that is is an accurate assessment of what Acts is teaching. I'm going to have to get into that more really in a future Sunday, but just know that I'm I'm aware of that. I, I plan to address that more in the future. But the baptism of the Spirit occurs one time at conversion, and after that, you can be filled with the Spirit innumerable times. That is my understanding of the New Testament. So, baptism is the initial moment of coming to trust in Christ. You are baptized once and for all in the Spirit. Everyone who's a Christian has been baptized in the Spirit. And I do not think tongues is an accompaniment of that, which again, I will talk about later. But we're all baptized in the Spirit, and then we can be filled with the Spirit many times. Ephesians 5, 18, probably Paul's thinking of Pentecost. Do not be drunk with wine. Remember, they accuse them of drunkenness. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And that idea of being filled with the Spirit is a continuous command. It doesn't just say be one time filled. It's be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we we can be filled and the apostles are filled many times with the Spirit. But this initial baptism takes place just once. Okay. I'm trying to clear the some of the questions that just pop up immediately with this chapter, and I'm not going to deal with all of them today, but uh, those are a few things to sort of get in our minds as we jump into this passage. Before we get lost in all these ideas, okay, which are great things to think about, here's, here's a piece of application to think about starting now, and, and then I'll come back to it, I hope, at the end of the sermon uh, for, for life application for us. If you ever feel <laughs> spiritually weak, if you ever feel like you're a, sometimes struggle with some cowardice in terms of just being bold for Jesus, because I do, uh, if you feel like you care too much what people think about you and you don't want to come off looking like some crazy Christian, you know, and whatever it is, or maybe you just feel timid or helpless or like you've failed the Lord horribly recently, maybe you feel like the Lord can't really use you in some way because you've done something in your past, maybe recently, Maybe it was this month. Maybe it was 5, 10, 30 years ago. But maybe you've got some sin in your past that is so in your mind and it comes back so often that you really think that you have hurt the ability of the Lord to use you greatly in this life, to use you for His glory. You feel like you're damaged goods with, with not your full potential in the future of what the Spirit can do. 
Well, let me tell you something. Does that sound anything like Peter the day before this happens? What had Peter done less than two months ago? He betrayed Jesus three times, several times to a few servant girls in the outside of Caiaphas' home. I've never seen the man. Then he cursed and swore with God's name, I've never seen the man, Jesus. I'm not a, Gal- I'm not a Galilean. I don't know the man. He betrayed Jesus horrib- horribly. He looked bold in the garden when he pulled that sword out and lopped off the ear of the servant, trying to do more than lop off his ear. But then soon after that, he's running scared out of the garden, leaving Jesus and abandoning him. He can't stay awake with Jesus in the garden for a little bit of time to pray before his own betrayal. And then after Peter runs scared, he's in hiding up in the upper room, making sure the door is locked because he doesn't want someone to find where they are and possibly arrest and crucify him along with the other apostles. They're all guilty, right? If we would have been there, we would not have done any better. We can all admit that. And look at, look at Peter. This is 50 days after that horrible night in the garden and the next day. 50 days later, Peter stands up in front of some of the same people who had Jesus crucified and condemns them for crucifying the Messiah of God and says, you must repent. Now, did the Holy Spirit work a transformative work that is inexplicable otherwise in Peter and the other apostles and the women who were there as well? Yes. And so, just in the background, as we work through a lot of material here, just know the life application is very strong on this point. All that we're going to look at in the next few minutes comes back to the Holy Spirit is accessible to you and I, and the Holy Spirit can fill us and use us with great boldness in this world to honor Jesus in ways that we could probably not have even understood. So look with me here at our passage, uh, Acts chapter 2, and I'm just going to read the first four verses, and we're going to spend a good bit of time on these first four verses, Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Just pause there. This is probably the 120, again, remember last week, the 120 in the upper room? This is probably who we're dealing with here, the 120 in the upper room. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues, that is, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. First of all, you may have foggy memory on this kind of stuff. I do too. What was Pentecost? The word Pentecost means 50, and this is 50 days after Passover. So, you can read about this in Leviticus and other books of the Old Testament. It was also called the Feast of Weeks, Seven weeks and a day after the Passover, uh, this was a, also a feast of first fruits. You would take the beginning of the harvest and you would come lay the sheaf before the Lord. This is an act of, of dedicating everything that the Lord is giving you to Him, showing dedication to Him. And I cannot help but think that one of the reasons why the Lord chose to give His Spirit on this day is because this is the feast of first fruits. And what are we witnessing right here? Are we witnessing the first fruits of the church age here? We are witnessing the first mass conversion in the new age of the new covenant. This is the first fruits of what is to come. And I think that that's probably part of what's going on in this passage. It's the first fruits indeed as 3,000 are led to the Lord on this day. Also, as Jewish history went on, the, the Feast of Pentecost began to be tied together with Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. You might say, why is that? Well, if you do about, so just follow this. Remember we were in Exodus not that long ago, for those who were here? They leave Egypt, Passover, crossing the Red Sea that night, and then they go to Mount Sinai. Well, they calculated it as being about 50 days between Passover and the giving of the law at Sinai. I'm not sure if that's precisely accurate. There's debates about the dating of the days, but essentially you have from Passover to Pentecost is leaving Egypt, Passover, to the giving of the law. Now, it is true that the Jews thought about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai on Pentecost. What does that have to do with what's going on here? Well, I I could just tell you the, the number of parallels 
between Mount Sinai and this event are hard to even calculate. There are so many. So just, just start with a few here. When they get to Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain to God, right? Goes up the mountain to God, and then he brings down the old covenant written on tablets of stone. Now, you remember the difference between the old and new covenant? God no longer writes the law on tablets of stone. That's outside of you. He now takes His Spirit and writes on the tablets of your, what? Of your heart, right? So, the law is within your heart. So, Moses ascends the mountain to God and then brings down the old covenant law written on stone. Jesus ascends to God, not on a mountain, up to heaven. He just ascended. And what does He do? He brings down the new covenant and the Holy Spirit who writes that law within our heart. So, there's a, there's a kind of parallel there. There are more parallels. On Mount Sinai was there fire. Oh, yeah. There was fire and lightning and loud sound, and there was smoke. Here, there are tongues of fire that come down, fire almost always representing God's presence throughout the Bible, the burning bush, a fire that does not consume, and on Mount Sinai, the fire and the pillar of fire by night. Fire often represents the presence of God, and here again, the presence of God comes down as fire. On Mount Sinai, there's this strange verse in Exodus 19. It says there was this blast of a trumpet coming down the mountain on and on. The trumpet sound got louder and louder. It was terrifying. Well, trumpets work through the blowing of wind, right? That's how that works. And here you have the sound of a mighty rushing wind coming down from heaven, which perhaps parallels that trumpet sound from Sinai. You also have not just those things. Uh, You also have the fact that God's people are being in the old covenant, constituted around this covenant, and now the new covenant is being given and His people are being constituted around that at this very time. Now, at the end of Exodus, God's glory on Mount Sinai doesn't stay on Mount Sinai. It comes down the mountain and it goes inside the tabernacle. And you have this pillar of fire coming up out of the tabernacle, and you have this smoke and this sense of fear. Even Moses cannot enter because of the glory of the Lord there. And this is just astonishing to me. Look at verse 3. Here it doesn't say there was one pillar of fire like there was over the tabernacle, like there was over Solomon's temple, like there was throughout Scripture. Here it says not one pillar of fire, but it says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, just think about that. Up until now in the Old Testament, if you want to go meet God, if you want to go into the presence of God, you go down the street to the temple or the tabernacle, and if God is manifesting Himself physically, there's a giant column of fire coming down into the, into the Holy of Holies, and you dare not go too close. And now in the New Covenant era with Jesus' death tearing the veil and giving us access to God, what happens? The pillar of fire splits one for 100, each one for 120 people. So now you've got a little tongue of fire resting over each individual Christian. The glory of God has gone from dwelling in a building to dwelling in you and me. That is astonishing. So God right now is bringing together His new temple. Isn't the church the temple of the living God? The temple language in the New Testament is typically referring to the church. First Peter 2, you are uh, stones put together living stones creating this temple of God. And so God's glory dwells in each of us individually, and then as corporate local, as, as local churches, God dwells in our midst together as well. Now, I know we know that, but I mean, one of the big things we've got to do is put ourselves back into their shoes, sandals, forgive me, put, put ourselves back in their sandals for a minute. And uh, when you do that, you, you think about this, you've been, you've grown up, Jewish, you're you're, you're trying to observe God's law, you love the Lord, and for well over 1,400 years, sure, the the Holy Spirit has come on people and He's used leaders at times, certain judges and kings and prophets and priests, He comes on them and uses them. But the idea that God would make up His residence inside me is astonishing to a Jewish mind in this time, astonishing. He doesn't dwell in me, He dwells in the temple. We go to Him. He doesn't come to us. That's why you're about to hear about Jews from every nation. They don't wait for God to come to them. They come to God in that sense. They come to Jerusalem for these feasts because that's where the Lord dwells in that temple. And so, the thought that God would come in a mighty rushing wind and not fill the temple but fill a home 
I mean, think about that. The mighty rushing wind fills the house that they're in. It's a domestic home. They're, they're not in... They're in, a, they're, in, they're in the upper room of a house, and suddenly that's becoming a temple, right? And then the, the, the glory of the Lord doesn't just rest in the room. It rests over each individual, little tongues of fire over all of them. The living God dwells within you and I. Now, in case we're bored with that idea, this is why when you read the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament that we find so strange today, you know, like having all these instruments with the Holy of Holies, how you wear your clothes, and the priest has all these jewels, and he's got to dress a certain way, he's got to change clothes, you've got to do ceremonial bathing, this and that and the other. It all sounds so foreign to us. What is that communicating? The communication is the closer you get to the presence of God, the more things need to be not just morally, but also ceremonially pure and holy and devoted to the Lord. Because the thought of taking something unclean and putting it in the presence of God was an abomination to the Jewish mind. And now, God dwells in you and I. Does this make more sense out of sec- is it, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not take the presence of the Lord and unite it to a prostitute. Do not commit sexual immorality because you're bringing the very presence of the Lord. You're a temple and you're associating it with what is unclean and defiled and immoral. He says, listen, don't, don't do that. You, you are a temple yourself. Treat your temple uh, in a way that is holy and honorable before the Lord, because His Spirit dwells within us. Holy doesn't mean condescending. It doesn't mean I'm better than you. It means a sense of awe, some of what Scott was just talking about, a sense of awe at the love, holiness, and goodness of God, that He would stoop to our level and indwell His people is, is astonishing, astonishing stuff. I'm going to move ahead. Oh, no, one more thing. One more thing on that. This also makes me just scratch my head. It just seems very interesting. So, at Mount Sinai, Exodus 32, verse 28. Don't have to turn there. Exodus 32, 28. This is the golden calf incident, right? So, they're not doing a good job keeping that covenant. It's been 40 days, and they're saying, let's bow down to this idol. And even Aaron is like, good idea. I'll help you make it. So, they're, they're bowing down to the golden calf, and what happens, the Lord asks for those who are faithful to stand beside, I think it's Moses, and you have the Levites come there, and the Lord asks them to bring down God's judgment. And that day, Exodus 32, 28, that day, 3,000 of Israel fell dead under God's judgment. What happens at Pentecost? 3,000 Jewish people are converted. Is that an accident? I don't think so. So when the old covenant is given, horrible idolatry and sin is committed in the very presence of God and 3,000 fall in judgment. The new covenant is given, the Spirit is poured out on individuals, 3,000 converted. Uh, I, I can't help but see a connection between those two numbers and sh- showing how astonishingly wonderful the new covenant era is within which we are blessed to live and to be a part. Also, they begin to speak in other tongues. Now, I, I do plan to do a whole sermon on tongues in the future, and you can make sure just to not come that Sunday if you know about it ahead of time. So, uh, I do plan to do that, and I want to talk about how we're to understand tongues, like, does it still happen today? What is tongues? I want to try to get into some of the nitty-gritty and 1 Corinthians passages on all that, but suffice it here to say that um, th- this is simply, this is the gift, okay, follow this, this is the gift of prophecy. So, imagine i got an umbrella here. This is the umbrella is called prophecy, New Testament prophecy. And then a subset of prophecy is called tongue speaking, speaking in other human languages that you did not previously know and had never learned. So if I started speaking flu- flu- fluent Russian right now, that would be unusual because I don't know Russian. That, that, that's something of what would be going on here. But here's why I say it's a subset of prophecy. L- look with me real quick at, at ch- later in chapter 2. He quotes Joel chapter 2 to back up what's happening. So they're speaking in tongues. He goes, let me tell you what's happening. I'm going to quote an Old Testament text that explains tongues, and then the text never mentions tongues. That's weird, isn't it? Let me explain tongues from the Old Testament. Quote a text with no tongues in it. What's going on? Okay, so 2.17, in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's clearly happening. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And again in 18, they shall prophesy. So what does he, he doesn't mention tongues, the, the verse mentions what? Prophecy. So see here, prophecy is the Lord giving you the ability to speak infallibly His Word straight from heaven, new special revelation coming straight out of the Holy Spirit through your mind, out of your mouth, infallible words from the Lord. 
And tongues is a subset of that. It's, a, it's prophesying in another language. Do you get that? It, 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 to prophesy is normally speaking a language that you know. That's normal prophecy in the New Testament. If you knew Greek and you prophesied, you would prophesy in Greek. But if you only knew Greek and a couple other languages, you're prophesying in Syriac, well, that would be prophesying in another language. That is the gift of tongues. And I'll just go ahead and kind of wave my hand here. I can't help but just say this. If prophecy is infallible in the New Testament, I made an argument before COVID that infallible words of the Lord no longer happen, and therefore tongues would also have ceased along with prophecy because it's a form of prophecy. That's very controversial, and I'll have to unpack that again some other day. A lot of things for the future today, it seems like. Okay, uh, let's keep going here. Uh, look with me at uh, verse 5. And let me, I'm going to show you a, a map here, and I doubt if your vision is able to read these words, then the Lord has given you really good vision. Um, that, wow, that, that's going to be hard for, to read. I will sort of give, I'll sort of let you know where this is all happening. So, I'm about to read that list of nations, and basically it starts on the east over here, and then it basically goes north, and then it goes southwest and west, and then it runs back east. So, that's a complicated way of saying counterclockwise, basically, okay? Basically. So, uh, I'm going to sort of point at the screen as I read this, so we'll see how this works. Uh, look at verse 9. So, Parthians, Parthia, and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, that's all four on the right there. Judea, that's in the center. Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia are all north. Phrygia and Pamphylia, also north. Egypt and other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, that's southwest. And visitors from Rome, we jump way out west there. Both Jews and proselytes, then last he says Cretans, that's that island there to the west, Crete. And then Arabians, which twists all the way back down here to the bottom right. So you see it's basically counterclockwise going around the city of Jerusalem. Now, what, what, is, the point of, what is the point of that right there. Why name these, these different locations? What's the point? Well, I'll tell you one thing that I think is, is pretty clear here. Number one, I think that there is a Tower of Babel theme running through this passage as well. You could probably fill in the gaps here of what I'm about to say. Before the Tower of Babel, the earth was united with one language, right? Genesis 10, you have the listing of all the nations, the 70 nations, and then Genesis 11, you have the nations coming together God said to spread, but they come together, they build a tower, and they're trying to reach where? Heaven. They're trying to get a tower to heaven. Now, now, look at this. Is Pentecost the opposite in some ways of Babel? It's man trying to get to heaven, and what happens in, in Pentecost? Heaven comes down to man, right? A wind from heaven came down. The Spirit came down. So, Babel is man's attempt to get up to heaven. Pentecost is God's gracious condescension coming from heaven down to us. Second thing here, at Babel, the division of the languages takes place. Everyone's suddenly speaking all these different languages, and uh, they don't know how to communicate, so they can't finish building the city, so they leave off and they begin to scatter, spreading out in, in pretty much the directions of what you see on this map here. Now, the division of the languages was a judgment of God. Okay, this doesn't mean it's a sin to be from different languages, but the, the, it was a judgment from God because mankind, in his rebellion against God, had tried to unite in rebellion to make a name for himself instead of spreading, filling the earth to make a name for Him. And the Lord says, I am going to judge by dividing the languages so you cannot communicate with each other. Well, here, how does Babel get reversed? Through Jesus, the gospel, and the giving of the Spirit. Now, suddenly, the disciples are speaking in languages they did not otherwise know, and what happens? As they speak in these other languages, suddenly the world is seeing unity around Jesus in a way that it has never seen unity since the time of the Babel division in the first place. Jesus is bringing the tribes and tongues and peoples and nations back together again in Himself. Now, that should tell you how great Jesus is, because nobody can unite everybody around one thing, it seems. But Jesus can unite people from every nation, and the Bible ends, as I just quoted, with people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation singing about the Lamb who was slain in heaven at the end of Revel in the midst of Revelation. So here we see the beginning of the overturning of Babel. Now here's another element here. Are we learning something about the mission of the church? 
our goal is, remember, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, heading in all those different directions. Well, if the Lord wants to signal what the church's mission is, which is reaching all nations, what better way to do it than to start the birth of this age, this new covenant age, with the giving of the Spirit so that His disciples speak 15, 16 different languages all at once, representing all the nations of the earth that we are going to reach. I mean, just, just think about it. over the next 40 years, Paul plants churches in many of these areas and ends up in Acts in Rome preaching the gospel. That's how Acts ends, with Paul in Rome, under house arrest, writing Philippians and preaching the gospel. That's how the, that's how the book of Acts ends. So, we, we are going to reach the nation. So, speaking in other earthly languages was a sign of our goal, which was world evangelization and world missions. Okay, uh, look with me here again. Uh, I want to look carefully at verses 5 and uh, 5 through 8. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because they, they were hearing each one of them uh, speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And it lists all their countries, verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying they were filled with new wine. I feel the need also to clarify something else that is confusing. Some people have taught that the gift of tongues is a gift of hearing, not a gift of speaking. Because three times in this passage, it says they keep hearing people speak in other languages. So, some people have said, what if they're just speaking one thing and everyone's hearing it in their own language? Okay, I understand the attraction of that view. I don't think it works because, real quick, verse 4 is critical for this view. Everyone agrees that they're hearing it in different languages, but why? Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. Now, do you see? It's not a gift of hearing. It's a gift of speaking in other languages. That's explicit in verse 4. So, th they were speaking in other languages. My, my conceptualization of this, now don't, I'm not getting this from the text. I'm just, this is imagination here, so dangerous territory when you're preaching. But I just pictured them broken up into groups in this area, smaller groups of the 120, and perhaps each group is speaking in a different language. I don't know. But, but they're, they're somehow able to be heard in all these different languages as they are standing there. They also, you know, they have a crowd of well over 3,000 people. Virtually everybody agrees. The only place you can have 3,000 people in Jerusalem at this time hearing someone speak is they had to move from the upper room out into the streets and eventually make their way into the Temple Mount because that's the only place you could have well over 3,000 people together hearing one person preach. It would, it would have to be inside the temple, which is an ironic place for the new temple to be born, inside the physical temple, which is likely where that took place, although it doesn't say that explicitly. Okay, now I want to talk for a second here about this gift of the Spirit. Do you remember, going back to Moses, in Numbers 11, especially verse 29, but leading up to that, God has brought some judgment on the people for rebellion. And remember Moses, he and some other leaders are given the ability to prophesy by the Spirit, to prophesy, and a couple other people not with them start to prophesy, and uh, Joshua, I believe it is, says, uh, Moses, shouldn't we tell that person to stop prophesying? Because they're not really with your group. They should stop. And Moses says, oh, I wish that all God's people were given the Spirit to prophesy. Amazing. Uh, uh, Numbers eleven twenty nine. I wish that all God's people were given the Spirit to prophesy. And Joel, writing much later than Moses, picks up on Moses' wish and by the Spirit turns it into a prediction. In the last days, Moses' wish is going to become a reality. God's Spirit is going to be poured out on all His people, and they will all, uh, they will be prophesying, they will be speaking uh, His Word, as you see here. So, this last section here, I want to look at uh, the issue of the renewal of Israel. So, look with me at verse 14. I'm going to reread this last section. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, nine in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. A couple things to note. First of all, the word Lord in the context would be Yahweh. And who did he just apply Lord to? Jesus. So very clearly, Jesus is equal to God the Father here. You call in the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. Secondly, you may be perplexed as I have often been. What are these wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes? My assumption here is that he's probably referring to two things. I think he's referring to some events that have just happened with Christ's death and his ministry. So he uses the words wonders and signs in verse 19. Do you see wonders and signs? Then look at verse 22. He refers to Jesus' ministry as a man of mighty works doing wonders and signs, same two words. So I think the wonders and signs started taking place in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. They're starting right then and there. That's the sign the last days have begun. By the way, signs and wonders, almost only used in the entire Old Testament referring to the Exodus. There's a couple of exceptions, almost only used of Moses in the Exodus. Now it's the new Exodus in Jesus that is, being, uh, that is happening now. Also, the, the sun shall be darkened. You remember Luke wrote his first gospel, Luke 23, verses 44 and 45. Between noon and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as Jesus was dying on the cross, there was darkness over the whole land, and Luke adds the phrase, as the sun's light failed. Astonishing verse. And then you have the, the, the tearing of the temple veil and on and on. So there is at least a partial fulfillment of these last day signs happening at the time of Jesus. The sun did go dark just two months ago, right? I mean, this, this is recent. But also, is it pointing to the final judgment of God when He truly comes back and the stars fall and the sun is turned dark and God judges the world? I, yes, I think that you're seeing early uh, samples of that through the judgment Jesus receives in His ministry. But then at the return of Christ, you see the full reckoning of God's judgment that will come on the world, which has not happened, obviously, yet at this point. Okay. So, I want to talk a little bit more about this Israel thing that I talked about a few weeks ago and pick up on this that I think runs through much of the book of Acts. So, for some reason, I, I taught on this maybe six years ago or so at my previous church, and uh, I mentioned the Babel thing, and I talked about that, and I couldn't, when I was preparing to teach on this about six years ago, I could not understand why everybody converted in Acts 2 is, is Jewish or a Jewish proselyte. That's a, Jew, a Gentile who fully converts to Judaism and is counted as a Jew. So, everybody from all these nations, every single one of them, is a Jew or a convert to Judaism. Every single one. I thought, it doesn't make sense. I remember prepping this several years ago. I go, if he's trying to emphasize reaching all the nations, why doesn't he have Gentile representatives from every nation? And, and now it makes much more sense to me. That just like the Old Testament said, God is going to begin by restoring Israel, remember? And that's what happens here. Every convert here is a Jew from the nations. And then from there, he's going to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the Gentiles, the ends of the earth. And that's how he begins to restore his people, uh, his renewed end time Israel. Now, a couple things to note. Just follow along with me for a moment. Look at verse 5. I'm, just going, to, I'm going to show you when he addresses the crowd, what he calls them throughout the whole speech. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So they're all Jews. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes. Verse 14, but Peter standing with the eleven lifted his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. And then he ends the sermon, look at verse 36, let all the house of Israel Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you have crucified. Now, I won't take the time to walk through this, but I do, uh, maybe I will again on a future Sunday. But Ezekiel uh, 36 and 37, you may be familiar with. Here's something I had never heard before. 
Did you know that Ezekiel, more than anyone in the Old Testament by a mile, uses the phrase, the, house, the whole house of Israel, all the house of Israel? It's almost like a, an Ezekiel phrase. And that's the one Peter is using here. He's like, all the house of Israel. It's, it's a phrase used by Ezekiel, I think, dozens of times, far more than anyone else in the Old Testament. And Ezekiel uses it especially in chapters 36 and 37. So put your thinking cap on for one second here. Are you ready? Just, just listen to some words from Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel. You getting the point here? This just keeps going. This is what he says he's going to do. I'm going to bring you back to your land from exile, right? They're, they're, in, the, they're in this exile. They're in the dispersion. They've been, they've been kicked out all over the world. I'm going to bring you back, Ezekiel 36. I'm going to put you in your land, right? The whole house of Israel is going to be there. And what's he going to do? I am going to put my spirit within you. Is that happening at Pentecost? I'm, putting my, I'm pouring out my spirit on you. I'm giving you a new heart. I'm washing you of all your uncleanness. I'm doing the new covenant thing here. And he says, oh, house of Israel. Keep saying it. And then he says this. You know this story? The valley of dry bones, chapter 37. Now, remember the word wind and spirit are both the same word in Hebrew, ruah, and in Greek, pneuma, but they both mean wind, breath, and spirit. Same word. So, spirit is wind is breath, right? Same word. Remember, so valley of dry bones is Israel in exile. Speak, prophesy, preach over these bones. As he preaches, he keeps using the word ruah, spirit, wind, breath, keeps using it. He brought me out in the spirit, the ruah. He said, um, I will cause the ruah, the breath, to enter you. I will put the ruah, the breath, in you. But there was no ruah, breath in them. Prophesy to the breath, say to the breath. Thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, the ruah. Oh, ruah, breath. You see the word ruah is common here. And breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath, the ruah, came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. You see? Then he says right after that, there will be one king over them, the true David. And they will no longer be two nations but one kingdom. My servant David will be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they will be at peace. My dwelling will be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I'm arguing that that's happening at Pentecost. Not in all of its fullness. They're not in the new earth. They're not in the new Jerusalem yet. But they're in Jerusalem, out of exile, right? They're the Jews from the nations. That's exiled Jews, diaspora Jews. They're brought home. The Spirit is poured out. They have a new heart, a new spirit within them. And what does God call that? He says, that's when my wind blows on them. What do they hear in the upper room? The wind, the mighty wind from heaven, right? And what happens? The nation of Israel is beginning to be restored right in front of our eyes. Our army is standing in front of us from death to life by the power of the Ruah, the Numa, the spirit, the wind of God. And he says, the whole house of Israel is standing before you. And what does Peter say at Pentecost? Let the whole house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I think it's happening right here and right now. Not, not fulfilled totally, but it's begun right here and right now. If that's not strong enough, by the way, is David on his throne? Yeah, Jesus just ascended to the throne. He's on David's throne, the heavenly throne. Is he reigning over his people? Yes. Is he giving his spirit to his people? Yes. Is he renewing and restoring and standing up that army out of exile? Yes, that's why they're exiled Jews together being born anew in God's kingdom. And then when you get to Ezekiel 39, two chapters later, it ends with these words. Listen to this. Just, just listen. Therefore, thus says the Lord, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands through them uh, and have vindicated my holiness in the sight of the nations, then you shall know that I am the Lord, their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. That's that map. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them, these words, when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. When did the Spirit get poured out on the house of Israel? Acts chapter 2. That's when it happened. That's what happened. So, right now, Jerusalem, the capital, has been reached. The next step in Acts is going to reach Judea, the whole southern kingdom. That's chapters 8 starts there. Then Samaria, the northern kingdom, is chapters 8 and 9, and they all get unified under David, the new David, and then chapters 10 and 11, they reach the Gentiles, the nations. So I think Luke is carefully constructing his narrative around these prophetic themes from the Old Testament text. 
All right, let me wrap up much of what I'm saying here, and let's move uh, closer to the Lord's table here. I'm going to reread verse 17 of Acts 2. And in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord. You may wonder, are we living in the last days? It's 2020. This is as last days as it gets. This is worse than 2012. I mean, this makes 2012 look like a joke. The Mayans got it wrong. They were just off by eight years. Okay, 2020. Does anyone have any idea what I'm talking about? Okay, Uh, 2020. So, um, 2020, I mean, people are asking, is this the end? I had students ask me this year, is this the end? Is this the end times? And my answer was shockingly, yes, I know for sure it is the end times. It is? Is Jesus about to come back? Maybe. He might wait another thousand years or two. But uh, I guarantee you we're in the last days because the last days started at Pentecost. The last, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. Well, guess when God poured out his spirit? Pentecost. So, we've been in the last days for uh, several days now, okay? <laughs> two, now, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. So, Jesus has been gone in his timetable for two days. He could wait three or four more days, couldn't he? He's not, he's okay. So, um, but we, we are in the last days. The last days is between Christ's first and second coming. So, between Christmas and his final return is the last days, and his final return is the last day, capital D. That's judgment day where the end, resurrection, and all all that follows after. But right now, we are living in the last days, but that tells you nothing about how soon Jesus will be coming back, and I have no idea. He could wait literally 2,000 more years for all I know. I mean, I have no idea of telling that. If he comes back today, awesome, but he he could wait quite some time before that happens. But I want to point out something here before uh, closing. That phrase, in the last days, I don't want to get too technical here, but, but I'll just tell you, the, the Greek phrase, in the last days, you might, you might have heard that, you know, the Bible uses that phrase a lot, both Testaments, in the latter days, in the last days. But here's something unique, and I, I double-checked all this. That specific phrase, in the last days in Greek, this exact phrase in Greek, only appears twice in the whole Bible. Once here, and the other time, because the other versions of that phrase are slightly different in Greek. Slightly different verb terms, it's slightly different order of the words, it's different. This exact phrase, in the last days from this verse, only appears one other time in the Greek Bible, counting the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 2.2, okay, the beginning of Isaiah 2. Now, in Isaiah 2, it says, in the last days, same exact phrase that, by the way, that phrase in the last days does not come from Joel 2. Peter is intentionally taking, what Joel says was, after those days. And Peter takes those words out and takes the words from Isaiah 2.2 and puts it in that quote, which this happens all the time. New Testament authors are always mixing quotations to kind of show you a deeper meaning. So, um, in the last days, it goes back to Isaiah 2, and in Isaiah 2 it says, in the last days, the mountain of the temple of the Lord will be exalted above all the hills of the earth, and Gentiles will stream into it, and the word of the Lord will go out from Jerusalem. Now, what I'm about to say is highly controversial amongst Christians who love each other. But I am under, I think what's going on here is this. When he says the mountain of the house or the mountain of the temple of the Lord will be exalted above all the mountains of the earth, I don't think he's referring to literal mountain altitudes. Like Everest will be lowered and Mount Zion will be higher than Mount Everest. I don't think that's what he's talking about. God can do that. I just don't think that's what Isaiah is saying. I think he's saying God's temple is going to be exalted above all the false gods of the world because God's temples were always on mountains, right? That's what you do. You get to the highest point you can find and you put a temple to connect between heaven and earth. That's what you do. So, if the mountain of the temple of the Lord is higher than all the mountains of the earth, that means God's temple is exalted above all the false gods, above all the other gods. And this is the part where Christians are going to disagree, but I think he's saying the temple is the church and that the church is the temple of God exalted above all others, and the Gentiles, are they flocking into God's temple in the new covenant? Oh man, we're all Gentiles flocking into that true end-time temple. And did the word of the Lord then go out from Jerusalem, like he says at the end of Isaiah 2-4, the word of the Lord's going to go out from Jerusalem. Well, that's literally happening in Acts 2. The word of the Lord is for the first time, in this sense, going out from Jerusalem. So, I take it to be that he's using that phrase in the last days, intentionally pointing back to Isaiah 2, saying, this new temple is here, it's being exalted, soon Gentiles will stream in, and in this time, the word of the Lord is going to go out from the city of Jerusalem. And I will just grant you, there are wonderful Christians who are far saintlier than I who would, who would take a different view of how to interpret that passage. Okay, I, wanna, I, I really want to wrap up now. Verse 21, this is my last point, I promise. Verse 21 of Acts 2, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, this is pretty astonishing. 
you can become part of God's true people. You can become part of God's end-time temple. You can be part of God's, part of the offspring of Abraham. You can be saved by Jesus simply by calling on the name of the Lord. And this table before us, I mean, on this day, 3,000 souls are added in verse 41. 3,000 souls are converted on that day. Whether you are ethnically Jewish or ethnically a Gentile, whatever you are, whether you have so much sin in your life that you don't think God could ever be merciful to you, or you think you don't need any salvation because you're a really good person, the gospel is equally needed by all, and it is available to all with one condition which is saying, I got nothing to offer to God. My most righteous acts are filthy rags, and my most polluted deeds can be cleansed in a moment by Jesus, and you are invited to come to the Lord Jesus to receive cleansing and forgiveness. And these elements here, the the cup and the bread, represent Christ's body, the bread given for us, and the cup represents His blood, which was shed for us. And the new covenant that we've been talking about today, to some degree, was purchased by His blood. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, if you don't know the Lord, these elements are not yet for you. What you need is not what those elements represent, but what you need is not the elements, but what they represent, which is the Lord Jesus Himself. So, if you're not a believer, turn from sin, trust in Jesus. He will save you right now, and then we would love to talk with you and meet with you, and if the Lord has converted you, we, will, we would love for you to be a part of our church and to take communion with us in future weeks. If you're a believer and you are not living in unrepentant sin or walking out of fellowship with a fellow believer, this table is for you. And so, in just a moment, uh, we're going to ask you to bow your head and to pray. And when I'm done, you can come up uh, at the time that you would like and come to these two tables on the sides and take uh, one of each of the elements and return to your seat, and you may take them uh, as you feel led. So, let me pray, to, uh, let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, the mere thought that you would take up residence inside of us by your Spirit is astonishing. That we would be called children of God, as we heard earlier, is astonishing. And this is all true because of your humble love for your people, your devotion to your glory and your massive and unimaginable forgiveness of our many, many sins. God, I pray that no one here would leave today with either a despair over past sin or with a self-righteousness over past accomplishments. And God, for those of us who feel discouraged, as I mentioned at the beginning, who feel like we've failed you too many times, that we've crossed too many lines, and that we've damaged any hope of being used, help us remember the Apostle Peter who after denying you with cursing, just 50 days later was filled by your Spirit and was able to speak boldly in your name and saw much fruit on that first great day of this new covenant age. So God, please be at work now as we come forward and receive these elements. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.